a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Thorough Talk. Hope you're doing well. I have to say today that that uh, I'm a very fortunate man. Well, l- let me rephrase that. I'm I'm a very fortunate black man. And maybe some of you are saying or thinking, well, well, Thorough, why why rephrase that? I mean, why can't it just why can't you just be looked at as a man? Well, I I think, unfortunately, that's not the world we live in today. Uh, I wish it were. And I'm really hopeful that in my lifetime it it can be. And this is a a very emotional time, very emotional episode for me. Um, You know, I'm hopeful that we someday can live in a place, a town, a city, a country that treats each other as equals that you can look past my skin color and into my soul and know that I'm a pretty good guy. We bleed the same blood. I'm hopeful. And so my parents were hopeful as well. They were hopeful when we all sat down in front of the black and white Zenith TV set and watched the brutality being leveled upon people marching peacefully in the protest alongside Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. They were hopeful on August 23rd, 1963. I was only two years old. And Dr. King brought the march to Washington, D.C., just a hop, skip, and a jump from where we lived and made his famous I Have a Dream speech. Yes, my parents were hopeful that in their lifetime, change would come. Well, both of my parents have passed away. And although some change did come due to the efforts of that time, they also hoped that generations after them would continue to to use what resources we have to continue the dialogue, to have the conversation, to listen, to be an agent for change and, and for justice. I am a fortunate black man because my parents, because of my parents and and those before me that fought to give me the opportunity to succeed in this life, to to dream a mighty dream of one day having a platform from which I could use to do some good. So today, folks, I take responsibility to try to be a part of the solution. 
So how did we get here? Of course, unless you've been living in a bubble or closet somewhere, you know that on May 25th, just less than a month ago, an African-American man named George Perry Floyd was killed by a police officer doing an arrest in, in Minneapolis. His death at the hands of a white officer, a white police officer, sparked protest around the country, including right here in Salt Lake City and internationally. And in response to Mr. Floyd's death, a more, more broadly, the spotlight has been brought on police violence against other black people. So today I, I decided to use this platform to hopefully become part of the solution and, and have the conversation. Uh, I know a lot of conversations have been had, but I didn't want to do that alone. Uh, today I have a just a very, very special guest for me on this show. And, and and I have the right to brag on him a little bit. So I'm going to tell you a few things about him. He served in law enforcement for over 25 years right here, right here in Salt Lake City, right here in Utah, and in a lot of positions. So I'm going to just read some of these because I can brag on him. Um, SWAT, Special Operations. Detective, Salt Lake County Gang Unit. Deputy Sheriff, West Patrol. Salt Lake County Investigations, Metro Gangs. East Patrol, Holiday City. Investigations, Metro Gang Unit Supervisor. Special Deputy U.S. Marshal. Investigator, Homeland Security. Listen, I've got 10 pages of stuff here. Um, but what I'm most proud of, it's hard, <laughs> interesting because at one time I was his protector and now he's been mine for a lot of years. This is my younger brother, my youngest brother, Lieutenant Saul Bailey, Saul Thanks for coming on. Welcome, man. Uh, thank you, big brother. It's uh, an absolute honor and pleasure to be with, with you today and uh, an honor to be here as well. And I appreciate your very kind words. Uh, and uh, I think we uh, hopefully at the end of this maybe uh, enlighten a few folks Yeah, and just get to tell our story a little bit, our real story. Yeah, it's, you know, it, I'm, I'm <clears throat> emotional because... Excuse me, my producer is in here too, Josh Tilton. Josh, did you bring Kleenex today, brother? Because <laughs> I think we both need them right now. Um, but interesting day for me today because, you know, of course, we both worked hard in our lives. We're going to delve into you in a second here. But um, I've been here in this city now for over 30 years. Now, I didn't always play here for the jazz. Of course, I played a total of about nine years with the jazz, but I've lived in Utah for over 30. And um, 
These are interesting times, Saul. I mean, these are interesting times because we both have been here a while and, and the things that are going on right now. Um, and I, I don't think, I don't know if surprise is the word, but I know well, are heartbreaking for me. But I want to first talk about you. Listen, you, you were a cop for over 25 years, but I remember when you were knucklehead, man. <laughs> Right? I mean, you were knucklehead right. coming out of high school, wasn't quite sure what you were going to do. Um, I was on pretty much some of that journey. So I just I want to go back. I want to go back and talk about what led you to law enforcement. Well, a lot of it, I think, originally stemmed from, um, again, it circles back to our parents. Yeah. Um, it circles back to specifically our mother. Aretha Bailey, who uh, who led a life of service in her community and as a community leader and uh, gave a really good example of, of what the actual rewards were of being of service uh, to your fellow man. And young and growing up, right, you don't, you don't grasp that, yeah. right? It's, it's kind of like, you know, when they, you know, they tell you, you know, don't, don't go run around the house with scissors. Yeah, what bad could happen, right? You don't really care. <laughs> you know, you're just, you got Peter Pan syndrome, whatever. <laughs> but it's it's after you get older and you've been in the world, then you start to appreciate the lessons that are taught to you by your parents and, and frankly, by your brothers and sisters and the lessons you taught me um, as I watched you go through your career and how you interacted as, as a citizen uh, not just of, of Salt Lake County or not just of Utah, but a citizen of the United States. And I think that is really what kind of molded me when I decided when it was, okay, it's, it's time to grow up, right? <laughs> I remember that moment. Yeah, it's time to grow up. Um, and, and what am I going to do with my life? Also what, you know, people talk about legacy and that's, that's usually something that, People think that's something that you determine or you write for yourself. It's not. Yeah. It's it's what what effect you had on other people because you're going to be gone, right? What are they going to say about you? What is it going to be? What indelible impression did you leave on them or your community when you're gone? And that's primarily what steered me toward uh, my career path, but also seeing the things that I saw growing up from law enforcement, yeah, and where we grew up. Yeah, and you talked about. Our parents, and especially mom and and her sense of service, but that's in front of a backdrop of the times, right? I'm a little older than you are, but you still remember. I mean, I was born in the '60s, and 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 you know what the backdrop of what they had to deal with was, and we remember those things. Oh yeah, I am. I am keenly familiar with with the trials and tribulations of our parents and our relatives. And it's funny because I, I got asked a few times early in my career, um, you know, you find it hard being a police officer. You find it hard being a black police officer and here in Utah. And I was like, you know what? My daddy had it hard, yeah. right? My mom had it hard. They were born in the thirties and grew up in the South and the Jim grew, up, Crow South. grew up in the Jim Crow South and then moved to D.C. for a better life for their family. And 
then raised a family in the heart of the of the civil rights movement. Um, so my daddy had it hard, yeah. right? My mom had it hard. Uh, so compared to some of the difficult things I've had to deal with over a 25-year law enforcement career, um, it, it pales in comparison uh, to what they had to deal with. And I think some of the examples that were set by them and some of the things that we experienced growing up was help, help mold me, um, first steer me to this, this career, and then um, it shaped how I wanted to be during that yeah. career and the impact that I wanted to have during yeah. it. Well, you know, as I look back, you know, I, I have these uh, remember the Titan moments, right, where desegregation was in effect. Well, it's supposed to be, right? And, and you know, some of the same things, if you watch that movie, some of the same things that that portrayed when the bus pulled up at the school and, you know, the parents were out there with signs saying everything in the book, right? Um, and we got through that, right? We got through that time. And you, you, you could start to see, because Bladensburg High School was 50% white and 50% black, right? And then you start to see the young people make that change. I became first black student government president at that school. So in, in our generation, it, it, it seemed like we were starting to make some changes, um, but it, didn't, it wasn't without its moments. I mean, I had a kid in school get in an argument with me and told me to go back to Africa. So I know that even as I moved on and, and you coming up in your time, when you nine years younger than I yes. am, um, you also experienced some things going through, through school. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's those watershed moments for us all. I remember mine vividly, and I'm talking first grade vividly. My first day at first grade, Beaver Heights Elementary Beaver School. Beaver Heights, yeah, man. I go to sit down. There's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid sitting right next to me. His name was Kirk. I mean, I'm, I'm a 50-year-old <laughs> man, and I remember this like it wow. was yesterday. And when I sat down, the first thing he said in an open classroom full of kids and the teacher is, I don't want this N-word sitting next to me. This is 1976, 1977. In elementary school. In elementary school. And I remember how I felt. And, of course, being that young, I didn't get the gravity of what that all meant. But I, I made sure, made a point to go home, and I, I told Retha May, that's our mother. And at 7 o'clock, promptly the next morning, she was at that school with me. Yes, she was. And addressed that issue in great detail with the teacher. Let me touch on that for a moment because I, I always talk about going to the right, taking issues and questions to the right people. I mean, I think a lot of times when something like that comes up, and maybe it's at school, maybe it's at and maybe it's more today than it was back then, or maybe it's more um, because you were in that position um, that you weren't afraid to go and, and tell mama, right, for her to do something about it. I think a lot of times maybe other people would sit on that, 
and just try to work it out for themselves or stew on it or take it, right? But what does that say about where a lot of that stems from, from the home and education in the family? Well, you know, there. first of all, there, there needs to be that support system, yeah. right? And if you're blessed enough like we were to have that support system from two caring parents who were, by all accounts, pretty stern. Yeah. Um, but one of the best for us to keep us all on the, on the straight and narrow, um, regardless of the environment that we, we grew up in, because we certainly didn't grow up in a great neighborhood. Um, but it also stems with the, and I'm sure we'll circle back around to this later, the, the social contract that, that, that people have with other members of the community that directly mm-hmm. affect their lives, whether it's teachers, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's uh, government officials, um, having those relationships as well to mitigate those problems early on. Right. But also what it did for me at a young age, it's, you know, as a young pup, it, it, it trained me, right. That I don't have to take that as well. Right. I, I am, I am better than that. Um, I can aspire to be more than that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> See, you can have me crying in here, man. <laughs> I got an extra tissue right here, brother. <laughs> you need to get some softer tissue. I know. <laughs> hey, we grew up with this rough uh, stuff. Yeah, come on. I feel like I'm wiping my face with a pine cone. <laughs> but, uh, come on, Josh. <laughs> it's in the budget. You know, let, let's be clear that uh, you and I are the American dream. Yeah. At different levels and different ends of the spectrum, we are what we aspire for our kids. We are what our parents aspired from us. And, and uh, you know, you rising to the highest levels of your profession and having success and me rising through the ranks in a, in a large metropolitan department and having successes there, you know, at the state and federal level and being able to provide for our children. That's, that's the American dream. That's what everybody wants. Doesn't matter what color you are. Yeah. Doesn't matter where you work. That is, and unfortunately, there's a large segment of this society, and this is the truth, right? It's, it's, it's the messy and uncomfortable truth, but there is a large portion of this society that that basic American dream that we all aspire for seems completely unattainable. It seems foreign to them. Amen. Um. And I, this isn't me trying to be political. No. I'm not. I'm a pretty apolitical person. This is real. This is just. I'm just talking life, right? I'm so people can take it uh, how they want to. But. And, and there's only one way to take it, Saul. I mean, it, it's it's real. It's true. Um, and <clears throat> I think everybody has their struggles in life. Um, there are people who decide they want that dream, but they don't want to work for it. Right, they don't want to. You know, they want it handed to them. They want to wait for it to come, and it never happens. Um, but you're right. You're right. And and as you started to, I, I remember the decision you made in your life to get out of that situation that we both grew up in. Right, I was out here already drafted by the Utah Jazz. We would talk on the phone. Um, I saw what you're up to. Listen, you got a couple of choices. 
right? You can stay there. You can continue to be that knucklehead kid and be another statistic, or you can come out here with me. I think you made a pretty good choice. Well, that's, what, uh, that's what big brothers are for, is to give you, uh, right. give you good counsel. And I think the lessons learned from just from our parents and our life experience, uh, you know, it, it molds who we are. Yeah. And I think collectively, just I guess individually and, and even as a people and as a nation, we can't forget our history. Um, we can't forget where we came from. We can't forget how we got there. I think that was mom's favorite line to us. It was always remember where you came from. With a fist in our face. Yep. <laughs> and, and also, when you, when you ascend the ladder, you don't step on anybody to get to the top because you never know when you slide back down, you may need those same folks. And that's about relationship building. We're going to take a break here. Uh, I'm going to get some softer tissue. And uh, we're going to come back here and finish our discussion. We'll be right back on Throne Talk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Thorough Talk and uh, you should have seen my producer, Josh Tilton, sprint out of here, man, during the break. He went and grabbed some some of the softest Kleenex I've ever had. We've got a case of water in here now. I think the, the fruit basket's coming. Josh, you're the man. <laughs> oh, man, this this is an interesting time, right? We have to find ways that that we can laugh a little bit, but there's some things that are just far too serious to to think about laughter when there's so much going on. I'm here sitting with my blood, my brother, Lieutenant Saul Bailey, who spent a long career protecting and serving. And, and uh, Saul, we talked about some things that kind of l- that led up to you wanting to uh, be in law enforcement um, when you were younger. I mean, there there had to be some instances, some stories that maybe grabbed you as a young man, and that you never forgot. You were able to hold on to, and 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 maybe led you in a in an indirect way 
to your career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and some of these I'm sure you'll remember, you know, for better or worse, um, some good experiences and some, some negative experiences. But I'll, I'll start off with one of the with some of the good experiences. And, um, you know, we grew up in Prince George's County, PG Maryland. PG County. Right on the border between D.C. Metro, PG County. And, uh, you know, let's be clear, the, the Prince George's County Police Department was a pretty hard-nosed police department. They've had their issues over the years. I also will echo say I think they are a fine police department. They've done some good work. Uh, but at the time, they were under the scrutiny for for uh, brutal police tactics and things like that. And I remember that there was always this ominous feeling when the police came around or rolled up and down our street. But I also remember the relationship that I had with some of them. I remember when we... Uh, we got lights on the basketball court, which yes. our mother helped get, yep. so we could have a lighted basketball court till midnight. <laughs> See the lights. Yep, that would stay on till midnight, and then somehow somebody figured out how to wire the box where <laughs> yeah. they stayed on till six in the morning, so we could play ball until three a.m. I think the statute of limitations is up on that, so feel free to comment on that. <laughs> um, no, I'll save that for later. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I remember vividly that four PG County cruisers would pull up to that park and park right in front of James Wilder's house, yeah. who, is, uh, who was a 22-year veteran of the uh, Baltimore City Police Department that we grew up with. And they'd park in front of his house. They'd get out in full uniform, and we'd be there playing ball. They'd pop the trunk, and anybody from the outside looking in thought, oh, boy, trouble's coming. These guys would take off their dress, their blues, take off their duty belt, bring one radio and set it on the cement step and jump in the game. Um, so that was the other aspect yeah. of some of the policing I grew up with. And they knew my name. They knew my parents' name. Yep, they did. I remember uh, got in a street fight as a teenager. They were like, oh, you're Miss Bailey's boy. They knew exactly who I was. And... And you're the last one in the house, too. I was the last I, one in the house. Uh, our sister Inga was gone, and so you were the last kid of, of five yep. still left. And they uh, they promptly mitigated that situation, and the the uh, the penance for that street fight, I feared uh, <laughs> Retha Bailey far more than I ever feared the <laughs> Prince George's absolutely. County Police Department. But the underlying st- thing that I wanted to get to is that, that that was part of the type of policing that they did as well. Part of the village. Right. And then another watershed event for me was, and this is, I mean, I literally was a, was a kid then, was 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 uh, Terrence Johnson. Yeah. And no one knows the story of Terrence Johnson, and I'm not asking anyone to be sympathetic to his plight, or, or I'm just telling you the story as I knew it. Terrence Johnson was arrested at 15 years old for burglarizing the laundromat and stealing money out of the coin laundry, I believe. And uh, forgive me if I get all the facts right, but he was taken back to the police station in the neighborhood we grew up in. Actually, I went to junior high school and went to my high school at the Hydesville Police Station. Yeah. And during the interview process there, uh, he disarmed a police officer, shot one and killed him, and shot and, and injured the other one badly. 
the understory was that came out in trial was he was being brutalized. And his defense was in order to save his own life. He disarmed a police officer, shot one. And he was convicted and went to prison for about 17 years, I believe. While he was in prison, got his degree, things like that. But that's not necessarily the, the, the moral of the story. Is the, the question for me was, you know, sometimes the, the truth may be in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. How did a 15-year-old young man, black man, who was arrested for a basic property crime, right? He burglarized and stole some coins out of a laundry machine. Take this humongous jump to attempting to kill two police officers and actually successfully killing one by disarming them. What happened in the middle, right? Right. Um, And unfortunately, that sometimes is a recurring theme that happens much too often across this country um, to folks that look like you and I. Yeah. And that's that's not a, a condemnation on the police department, because let's be clear. I've been on this planet for 50 years. Half of that 50 years, I've served my community as a police officer. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I'm not here to I'm just here to. to to tell about the world that we live in and the we the, the reality of the world that we grew up well, in. Saul, that's a that's a very unique perspective, uh, especially with what's going on right now, right? Because um, even with the case of George Floyd, it it doesn't seem to just now be about white officers killing black. I mean, obviously. That's what a lot of the protests are about. But now it's about law enforcement as a whole. It's about um, reform. It's about... So all those things that you just talked about, that you talked about Terrence's story, you talked about the cops that dropped their gear and came and played ball, but still they led you to want to be a law enforcement officer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of it was from our, our background too, right? In athletics yeah. and competitive True. and, and looking for the, a challenge, always these challenges. Um, and the way we were, we were exposed to a lot of different people. Yeah. I grew up a black kid from the inner city, but I, our parents also exposed us to a lot of different things. Yeah. Like we were exposed to our to deep south, our relatives there. We were exposed to our relatives in New York. I mean, by the time I went to high school, my high school was predominantly white. I mean, I went to one of the top high schools, and then at the time, one of the top high schools in the nation. The Mapa. Yeah. And and so my exposure to other people and other cultures and getting to know other people's story helped lead me in that direction as well. And it also gave me a basis to help me have more understanding. Um, so let's which talk, helped me in my career. So let's talk about some of the understanding. You've, you've, you've been in the thick of it. You were in the thick of it for over 25 years. Um, in, in reference to what's going on now, how do we get to this point? I mean, you're a black officer in a predominantly white state, city, right? So 
talk to us about, I mean, I, I know that there's in every profession, there are those. I mean, you trained some of these folks. I mean, that, that's position. You oversaw some. You were in a position of, of leadership and power. So talk to me about that journey and, and that road. I know you may not be able to get specific, but um, from your point of view. Well, I think for me, um, you, you set a set of standards, right, and how you want to mold your career and what kind of influence you want to be or what kind of force you want to be. Right. And eventually you work to a position where you're going to influence other folks. And for me, when I started policing, I knew I used some of the backdrop of what I learned, good and bad, as a, as a youngster growing up in D.C., the things that I wanted to do with respect to, to how I policed. And, you know, I look at, you know, the, the buzzword for years has been community-oriented policing, CLP, right? It's been around for years. And it's, it's a great concept that, I, that, that helps um, develop that, that bond between the community and its police force. But also part of it, really, that's just policing, right? right? Knowing who lives in that neighborhood, having a personal, you know, somewhat personal relationship, just like, oh, you're Miss Bailey's son who was in that fist fight. Yeah, when I take you home, your justice is going to come there from your mama. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, and and so building those, that social contract, that that social capital up was something that I tried to pride myself on during my career, which inevitably helped me have success in our, in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times people have this us against them. And you know what? It really, it's just us. Right. Um, and that's the bottom line is try to establish that trust to know other people's story. Um, particularly me being here in, in uh, law enforcement in the state of Utah. And, and let's be clear, I have brothers and sisters uh, within the law enforcement community that I literally consider my brother and sister. Yeah. Um, and not all of them look like me. But a select few of them do know my story because they ask the other questions. And I think maybe if we have people that listen to this that are still in the profession and love it and as passionate about it as, as I was, have those kind of conversations, right? I would love for more of the people that even I used to work with as much as you want to ask me how to write an effective search warrant or how to make the SWAT team or how to be a good detective or a good cop, maybe ask me about, hey, how was it for you being a black man in America? How was life for you? Because then you get someone else's perspective. And I'm not asking for or saying I want you to be, you know, sympathetic. or I just want you to understand. I want you right. to have the facts right. of the world that other people live in that don't look like you. Yeah. So you have that information when you are interacting with them. Yeah. So you're, you're interacting with people from a place of knowledge. Instead of ignorance. Exactly. 
because I think we've all seen what bad things can happen when we act from a place of yeah. ignorance. You know, that can, <clears throat> for me, I think that can be, I think for a lot of people that can be taken on a broader scale to communities. I mean, when I first came to Utah, excited to be drafted by the Utah Jazz, coming from a culture that we just talked about to a culture where I might see one other black person on my way to practice once a week. And it's the same guy. So he's in the same place. I'm going <laughs> to wave to him and I'm going to go to practice. I'll say, see you tomorrow, buddy. <laughs> um, but you hear the term used, and I, and I may use it as well sometimes, about living in a bubble. Um, you know, I, I remember distinctly going to a, uh, a jazz booster's house for dinner invited because they they would have we would have like these um, what do they call them surrogate parents in a way or friends that would invite you over to kind of acclimate you very very nice people very nice families um, but I got my first taste of and and maybe it wasn't ignorance to the point whether it was their fault because maybe they hadn't been in the situation but we sat down at the dinner table to eat and they had three kids and the, the, the couple of the older kids came around the table because they, they were you could tell when kids stare at you right it's it's because they're kids right they're intrigued but they came around when they got comfortable with me and they started rubbing my arm. And I don't think their parents knew why they were doing it. They were rubbing my arm, and then one of the younger kids looked up at his his dad and says, Dad, it doesn't come off. And I didn't make a big deal about it, right? Because one of how we were raised, right, it, it didn't hit me as, it, it hit me instantly as, well, these folks just don't know. You know, they, they, they haven't had that conversation. These kids are kind of old enough, but they haven't been in this situation before. Um, and I'm not saying that's an excuse, but I'm just saying that's kind of what I experienced when I first came here. Now, I, 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 I knew firsthand that the people I came across were awesome, right? They were awesome to me, at least. But then I started to think about, you know, I'm a black person in a predominantly white area that don't get to see a lot of blacks. Am I getting a pass? And the reason I say that is because, listen, I'm a, I'm a Utah Jazz player. So when you see that, you don't necessarily see color as much as you, you see, like, fame. And maybe sometimes people don't attach color to that. So maybe I could get away. Maybe get away isn't the right, right word, but maybe it is. Um, with certain things that just a normal black citizen wouldn't be able to. So I, I learned those things right off, especially when I began to learn the plight of other people who weren't in my position, other black people, right? I would get letters and I would get things asking how to deal with certain things. And so I, I learned that early on. Um, but I want to get more into what's happening today. You've been in law enforcement for years. I've been in this community community for over 30 years and Saul it just it just literally literally broke my heart 
to see what was going on in this city. Um, and I understand the cause. I understand the purpose. I understand uh, the genesis of where everything stemmed from, not just in this city but around the country and even internationally. But on the other side of things, Saul, to see people's hard-earned work going up in flames in other places in here, to see looting, to see all the things. I mean, I even heard an interview. There was a young black guy being interviewed, and he was part of the rioting, and, and he said, well, peaceful, peaceful protest just doesn't work anymore. I sat there and I heard that on TV, and it took me back to our parents. So I guess I'm asking you in this light, um, what can we do? You're on both sides of this thing, you know? You've served. You've, you've, people just don't even know the situations you've been in in your career. I know because you've shared those stories with me. I didn't know whether I was going to have a younger brother after something went down. But you've been through it. You've fought through it. Um, why are we where we are today? <clears throat> well, I think uh, there's a whole host of things that are that are involved in it. And some of them go way beyond policing or even how we police. Um, there's tons of social economic issues that, that are involved in it. It circles back to some of the things that we talked about with the American dream. <clears throat> well, they talk about, you know, communities that they would say are over-policed or there's too many police in the community, or the crime rate's high in the community. Okay, well, the crime rate didn't just start with that one person. Maybe it started because there were no jobs in that community. Maybe it started because, I don't know, maybe out of the five schools in that community, they had like five computers between the whole stinking school, right? Maybe those those keys that unlock the door, the access to the American dream. I mean, let alone them even having the keys, they don't even have the door. So to be, I think it's a little naive. And this isn't, this isn't to take away from personal responsibility because I'm big on that. This isn't to take away from, you know, you know, what's right and wrong. But if the environment is created where there are disenfranchised folks that have no access to develop skill sets to reach that American dream, to have education and employment opportunities in their, their communities, mm -hmm. then you are going to have crime. Then you are going to have bad neighborhoods. Then you're going to have more police in that neighborhood. And then now we step over into that other lane of now you're going to have more negative interactions right. with the police. And then you bring in the historical systematic things and and it is a it is literally a recipe for disaster. And to say that there are people in this country 
that were born way before you and I were that have been yelling this to at the top of their lungs for years would be an understatement. And if anything comes out of this horrific incident is that they start to be heard and these things start to be addressed. Right. From, because I get to wear two hats here, right? Which is, so speaking from the other side of it, my, my, 25-year career with my other family is that we can always do better. Um, We do better when we are partners with the communities that we serve. We do better when we build that social capital, right, with the communities that we serve. Because let's be clear, there, if, if you're in a, whether you're in a small police department or a major metropolitan police department, at some point in time, if you do this as long as I have or the police department's been around for a while, you are going to have a critical incident. That is just a fact of life. That is whether it is a shooting, it is a traffic accident, it, whatever, right? But how that incident, and it, it, whether the police were right or wrong or in the middle or are still trying to figure it out, but how the community is going to react to that is based on whatever social capital you built, you already had built in before that incident happened. That's right. And if your agency has a history of mistreating that particular community, regardless of what that critical incident is, I'm sorry, you are not going to get the benefit of the doubt because you haven't earned it. Yeah. You haven't earned it by, again, knowing who lives in that community, interacting with them as equals in that community. Being fair to people in that community. Earning trust. And earning the trust. I mean, you know, I've taken a few oaths in, in my career, and I've had to reaffirm those oaths. Some of them were to Salt Lake County. Some of them were to the state of Utah. Several times were to the United States Constitution. That, last time I checked, protects us all equally. And if the people that you protect don't feel like that that applies to them, then what sense does it make? It's not going to make sense to them. Yeah. Wow, Saul. I mean, I I could sit here with you, man, like the old days and just just talk about stuff. And I'm really grateful to have this opportunity for people who listen to this podcast to to hopefully find the messages that resonate to you. Have the conversation. Don't be stuck in the bubble. And have that conversation at home with your kids, with your family, with the people you love. Educate yourself. And this isn't solely about the black community. You know, this is about us locally here understanding what we need to do, what each of us can do individually to make things better. To Because we're all a part of this community, as my brother said. Saul, thanks for, for coming. I wish we had some more time, but um, I just want to let you know that it's your turn to buy lunch now. Absolutely. So, you know, I'll pick a spot. <laughs> Mickey D's number two, right? (laughs) Oh, no. We're going way beyond that, brother. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for 
joining us on this episode of Thorough Talk. And uh, I hope that in some way, shape, or form, you've been enlightened here. Hopefully, you've it's touched your heart in some way. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks again. Take care of each other. We'll talk to you soon.